Hey everyone, before we get into today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Coinbase Prime and Ledger. Love these companies, genuinely proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them later from me, but now on with the program. Let's say Bitcoin gets big enough, it becomes worth, you know, tens of trillions of dollars. That things that, that people have put an additional monetary premium in for lack of good money might get drawn out and into Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin has really come through on its sort of its value proposition, which is a store of value. All right, everyone. Welcome back to On The Margin. I'm really, really excited for this week's show. We got a couple of all-stars in the form of Lynn Alden and Mr. Yurian Timmer. Welcome, Lynn and Yurian. Thanks for having me. Nice to, nice to be here. Nice, nice, nice to see you, Lynn. You too. I actually want to start with one of Lynn's charts here. Um, if I can pull this up. Um, and ultimately, I'm really interested in this idea of comparing different periods in history. Um, and Lynn, uh, one that I, uh, two different periods that I know you talk a lot about, um, and Yuri and I know you have opinions on as well, is just this idea of comparing the 1940s and the 19, 1970s as different time periods. So I guess, um, why did you think to put together these two charts uh, that we're looking at here, which is kind of a history of, uh, for those of you not watching on video, century of U.S. debt as a percentage of GDP and a century of U.S. monetary and fiscal policy. What does that tell you about those two uh, specific historical analogs? So I've generally found that the, the idea of the long-term debt cycle uh, is, you know, the kind of the closest thing I have to like a master framework for what's going on right now. Uh, and it's one of those things where obviously every every cycle is going to be different. It goes back to that quote that is, I don't know if it's correctly or incorrectly attributed to Mark Twain, Twain but it's like, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme, right? Mm. So when, you know, we, we went into this period and people keep talking about these, you know, extraordinary events happening, unprecedented, never seen these types of things before. Um, and just by, by happenstance, I had been researching this topic for years and, and just kind of, you know, it's one of those things you never know exactly why you come across the right sources. Um, but I came across this type of research. And so this this actually, in my view, prepared me for what we went through over the past two years um, because we did have an histor historical analog for it. We did have some bottlenecks. And so basically what this shows is that, you know, we go through the normal business cycle. And most people just think in terms of those five to ten year increments. Um, but what we see through history is that, you know, for, for reasons related to demographics and politics and, you know, distributions of power between capital and labor and all sorts of reasons. We go through these long-term debt cycles as well. Uh, and so basically this chart shows, you know, 100 years of history in terms of uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy in the United States. And so we can break it apart into, you know, the chart on the left there shows private debt as a percentage of GDP. It's technically a little bit of state debt in there too, but essentially it's all the, all the debt sources of entities that cannot print their own money. Uh, and then you have federal debt in blue. Uh, and we so we see the history of kind of debt accumulation over time, and then on the on the you know the right hand chart you have short term interest rates, uh, you have monetary base as a percentage of GDP, uh, and you have fiscal deficits in gray lines as a percentage of GDP. And you know it doesn't tell you everything, and there are differences between the 1940s and the 2020s, obviously, right? So there's techno technology differences, uh, there's demographic differences. Uh, you know we. Back then we were a creditor nation. Now we're a debtor. Now we're like a, a debtor nation, trade structural trade deficit nation. Uh, but there's a lot of similarities. Uh, and so basically, what they did last time was they had so much debt in the system, they had so much fiscal spending. Uh, and so when they did that f massive fiscal spending and it was inflationary, they were still pretty much forced to hold interest rates low anyway. Uh, and so that was kind of different from the 70s. Uh, and basically, it's just the way that I'm, I'm kind of thinking about this environment. And then using that as a framework so that, you know, this is kind of my base, my baseline. And then I look to see what is different. So what are the differences from that period? What is happening in this time? What are the specifics? And go from there. But I really, I really find that this helps contextualize where we're at. Yeah, I would agree. I, I do notice that you've called out a couple of banking crises um, here. Is that just a coincidence or is that a strain on the, is that... How would you put the causal arrow there? Is it uh, you think some of these strains uh, stress the banking system, or are they causal and actually creating some of the problems? Well, as we see, those were peaks in the in the private debt to GDP cycle, mm. uh, and so you you generally had speculation and all sorts of things leading up to those, uh, you know, different specifics. But you, you essentially had you know speculation and debt accumulation and and basically malinvestment leading up to those, uh, and then but because you know a debt bubble popped and because it was so big instead of a normal credit cycle 
you had unusual measures taken, right? So you had currency devaluations and other things like that uh, to you know address those. Uh, and so on one hand, you had some nominal defaults, uh, but you also uh, you know a, a kind of a change the denominator, currency itself, right? So in the 30s, you eventually devalued the dollar relative to gold, uh, and uh, in the in the you know the uh, 2000s and 2010s, we did quantitative easing. We recapitalized banks. We did the trouble asset relief program. So both of those were ways to try to salvage the banking system and start you know reducing that debt partially through defaults, but also just partially through you know diluting the currency. Yeah, and you know, if I could just add add to the excellent points that you just made, Lynn, you know the financial crisis was obviously a, a bursting of a private debt bubble, right? Banks, corporates, households. Uh, there was not really a government debt issue at the time. But then the debt, you know, through QE and, and you know, the, the, the TARP and everything got essentially redistributed to the government. And uh, it didn't happen exactly like that in the 30s and 40s. But, you know, in the, in the, in, in the early 30s, you had the, the, the private debt bubble. And then in the 40s, you had this massive run up in, in government debt, you know, during World War II. And there are definitely parallels there. And now we're in this financial repression age, just like we were in the 1940s, where you know governments can't afford high interest rates because there's too much debt out there. If I'm looking at these two periods of time, uh, you know the primary factor that sticks out for me is you had periods of secular inflation both in the 1940s and the 1970s for different reasons. The primary difference there was interest rates and how the government or the central bank uh, controlled them to try to mitigate the crisis. So back in the 1940s. It was unpalatable to raise interest rates. You essentially had yield curve control, and there was an era of financial repression. And in the 1970s, debt levels were relatively low, and you obviously had Volcker, who aggressively combated that inflation by famously hiking interest rates and successfully, I guess, fighting that inflation. Is that an accurate summary, or am I missing some of the nuance there? So I would say that basically there were different bottlenecks. And so the, the 2020s and 1940s were a, a, a federal debt problem. Uh, as Yurian mentioned, uh, and so those were the inflations of those eras were in large part from the the fiscal stimulus uh, that was you know necessary for external reasons. Basically, those external reasons kind of forced these these big you know almost like MMT like programs. The 1970s had a different set of constraints because as the chart shows, we at that point we had already inflated a lot of the debt away. We had we had pretty low debt. We also had a strong era of growth for a while, uh, and so both. Uh, you know, public and private debt were low, and so they were able to raise rates. Uh, for, you know, in that era, the bottlenecks were a couple. One is obviously we went off the gold standard, um, and I've I've had other articles right. I've shown charts, for example, that if you looked at, you know, foreign ownership of treasuries, because uh, those are the ones. You know, foreign ownership of dollars and, and treasuries, which by extension are dollars, were the ones that were still redeemable for gold. Uh, and so we started to have this period throughout the you know the uh, 50s and 60s where our gold reserves were drawing down, but our, our external liabilities were increasing. And eventually we had a crossover point. Uh, and, you know, the French and the other and other creditors started to notice this. So they started wanting the gold. Um, and so basically we, we essentially had too many dollars to, to keep backing them by gold at that rate. And so we had a, we had a you know, breakdown of our monetary system. Uh, and then two, if you look at uh, domestic U.S. oil production, it peaked in 1970. Uh, and it then went structurally down for decades. We basically just ran out of, you know, the, the ability to keep expanding conventional oil at that pace. So we're obviously still producing it, but we were producing it less, even though our, our demand was still growing. Um, and so we had to shift towards more imports. And that, of course, when you're when you're also going off the gold standard, we had a, a variety, basically an inflationary environment for those monetary reasons combined with those physical restraints connected to energy and other things. And so I, I would describe the 70s as a lot more specific uh, compared to the, the closer analogy with the 2020s and the 1940s. But there are elements from the 70s as well. I mean, we have similar fiscal programs, uh, and we I think we're arguably going to have some energy shortages. And, you know, and I, I would just add, I think I think the, the real comparable is actually more like the mid-1960s, right? If we look at stocks to bond correlation, this inflation creep, if you look at a five-year uh, Kager of the CPI, uh, you know, we, we had the 50s and 60s 
very, very low, stable inflation, low, stable interest rates. And then during the mid-60s, that started to kind of uh, trend higher. And of course, we all know what happened in the 70s. But the second half of the 60s, you know, you look at the 1968 stock market peak, that was all about uh, speculation in essentially meme stocks. They were space stocks at the time. Um, and you have, you know, the, like the social unrest we had last year, that happened obviously in 1968. So, I, there, there are some parallels with, with, with the 60s, and I think for, uh, for us as traditional investors, and speaking on behalf of Fidelity here, you know, the, what, what that does to the 60-40 paradigm is really one of the most existential questions out there. Because if the 40 stops working, we need to find other things to put in that bucket. And you know, as you can see, there, there are other things to put there, but, uh, but that, that, that could be a sea change after 20 years of dominance of, of the 60-40 model. I, I agree. One thing I'll add. So the I, what I do find the 60s particularly useful for is that it's a closer uh, comparison to the in equity market terms than the 40s were. Yeah. Uh, because the 40s, you know, we went into that decade with very low equity valuations. We obviously had the whole, you know, the Great Depression. Uh, then even in the initial phase of the war up until up until, the you know, some of the early decisive victories in the Pacific, uh, you know, equities were very pessimistic. So they went into that period with low valuations. And so that's not necessarily a good, uh, you know, framework for determining, you know, equity performance in this environment because you had very different starting valuations. Uh, whereas the 70s or the late 60s, you had the nifty 50 stocks. Uh, and so you had these, you know, large cap U.S. growth companies that could do no wrong uh, and that were very highly valued um, combined with the fact that we were running into a more inflationary environment uh, from a very, you know, disinflationary low rate environment. Um, and so you end up getting a, 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 you know, a decade of poor returns, even though many of those companies, I mean, those companies were like Disney, Coca-Cola, Xerox. I mean, they, they did incredible for decades fundamentally, but they were just mispriced uh, in the late 60s. And so I actually do think that the this, this 60s and 70s are, of course, still very illustrative to us. Um, and especially in terms of, 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 say, the equity market. By the way, I'll give you a, a quick trivia. Um, by the early 1970s, uh, at that peak in January 73, the Nifty 50 stocks were, had um, twice the valuation of the next 450 stocks in the S&P 500. Exactly the same thing that happened in 2000. The different, different cast of characters, but it had double the PE of the rest of the market. Um, so. when, you, when you look back at history, there's, there's, a, there's a tendency that a lot of, that we as humans just do, we, we like to reason by analogy um, and we like to pattern match. Um, and, you know, why I wanted to, uh, Yuri, and I, I love this slide uh, that you put together because, you know, depending on who you talk to, there's a lot of different historical examples people tend to cite, right? So, uh, you know, if you're looking at, yeah, the late 1960s or early 1970s, I love that example, the Nifty 50. I was actually just listening to uh, Bill Fleckenstein and Grant Williams make that exact same comparison uh, between the Nifty 50 and the FANG stocks, although um, we lost the F in the FANG, so now I guess it's the MANG stocks. Uh, doesn't sound as nice, but uh, it's kind of funny, though. Um, you know, so, and we've obviously got oil that looks like it's making, uh, you know, a run as it famously did back in the era of the, uh, the oil embargo uh, back then. So it seems like there are some examples there. Uh, but obviously, there are some correlations, I guess, back to activities that was happening in, you know, the 1940s um, with just sustained negative real rates and that, you know, we could be returning to that type of future. So I thought those were both really helpful examples. I guess if I put the question to you, is it a more helpful analog to look at the period of the 19, let's say, 60s to 80s? Um, as an environment that we're heading into, or the 1940s, uh, you know, to early 1950s, which is more helpful? Is that too, do you have an answer there? Is that too simplistic a question? And really, it's more nuanced than that? I mean, how would you frame looking at these two periods of, of history? Yeah, I, I would just say, um, um, and I agree with Lynn when, in quoting Mark Twain, is that there's going to be snippets of different analogs that are going to be relevant in some ways, but totally irrelevant in others. So obviously, the 1940s, that was, you know, World War II, um, it, the, you know, the, the demographics were totally different. We didn't have that deflationary tendency from technological advancement. Um, and in many ways, you know, the, the, the 70s are totally different. I mean, the 
the rate, uh, the percentage of the labor force that was unionized back then was about 25%. It's six now. So, you know, obviously we have a different kind of wage inflation of, of you know, of, of basically a lack of truck drivers and other things that maybe will be resolved uh, without the help of, of unions. But so there's always going to be similarities and differences. But um, one of the things that really struck me early during during COVID, you know, a year and a half ago, was people were looking at the 1930s, say, oh, this is like 1929. And then, you know, we had the, that, that double-barreled fiscal monetary response. And, and, and Lynn has mentioned that many times as well. And to me, that really is was the game changer for this cycle that made this cycle less like 1929 and more like the 1940s. I mean, there are only very rare instances where you have this double-barreled fiscal monetary, right? So you got fiscal deficit spending, uh, a big fiscal impulse essentially monetized by the Fed. And of course, the Fed didn't even exist before 1913. So the Second World War is really the, the, the best and almost only example of this, this kind of twin policy response. And that's why I, I very quickly uh, you know, went to the 1940s analog with the caveat that many, many things are different, including, including the valuations, as Lynn mentioned, you know, the, the PE ratios were, were, were very, very low. The equity risk premium was in the double digits, which is hard to, hard to imagine you know, seeing that it's about 3% right now. But what I find interesting is that if you look on the left-hand side of that slide there, so this is kind of an unusual way of showing market history because I show it as a scatter plot of the nominal 60-40 against the real 60-40. And you're able to kind of see those periods of stagnation or inflation in the, in the stock market or at least in the 60-40 model. But if you go all the way on the left, that is, that's the 1940s. And what's interesting is that you know, there was really no other place to be than in stocks because the bond market was completely repressed. You know, the Fed was buying, the Fed increased its balance sheet tenfold from 1942 to 1946. Um, in, there were price controls because of the war. So the, the commodity indices really didn't show, don't show what probably was really going on. And so other than equities, everything else would have been a major drag on the portfolio. Then you go to the from 65 to 80, which is in the middle of the chart there, and you can see that there were a lot of places to go, mostly in commodities, you know, gold, silver, commodities in general. And we actually we've we've constructed a a hypothetical tips series going back to 1926, and using that you know with with all the caveats involved, hypothetical tips series. Tips would have done very well during the 70s as well, but obviously we know bonds and cash did not. So. Uh, you know, I think it's our job um, to kind of see where the similarities are, but also to see how they're different. And, you know, history is never going to repeat itself. But I think that that fiscal monetary double barreled response is really what sets this cycle apart. And I think explains why uh, why that left tail a year and a half ago was cut short to, 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 to such a, a dramatic um, degree. Yeah, I would, yeah, I basically say that overall, I find that the you know the, the that kind of long term debt cycle, the '40s, is kind of I think the, for me kind of the the biggest kind of framework for thinking about it. And then what I do is I go to these other periods and I find those similarities. So the '60s, like we said, as the as the equity comparison and the energy comparison. Another analog you can use uh, that, for example, Luke Groban uses is Europe in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, uh, because you know back then the United States was in some ways like the you know the emerging market. We were the rising power, and so we were the creditor nation. We were the exporter, and some of those had their industrial bases damaged from the war. Uh, the UK had trade def uh, trade deficits, uh, and so he he uses some of the more European analogs uh for for determining where we are in the cycle and i think there's a lot of validity to that um and so i, I basically kind of go through these kind of you know one by one and kind of you know put a put a patchwork together to come up with the closest thing another thing is you know in terms of say say hypothetically how tips would do or how short-term treasures would do in general a big difference between the 40s and the 70s is if you if you park your money in those shorter term treasuries you could retain at least somewhat more of your of your purchasing power than you could in the 40s because in the 70s the, those short-term rates would you know eventually adjust to kind of keep up with inflation as the fed tried to fight it whereas in the 40s because they completely you know gave up from the start on, on fighting that inflation and instead capped the yield curve uh those short-term ones actually did even worse than the long-term ones um and so really kind of 
there's nuances like that that are helpful to know when navigating this. Yeah, the, you know, the compound annual growth rate for long-term government bonds from 1942, which was the start of the war, of at least the U.S. entering the war, and 1951, which is when the Fed gained its independence, uh, the CAGR for that period was 2.4%, and the volatility, the annualized vol, was about 2, 2.5%, even though the CPI was up 5.6% during that time, and probably a lot more because price controls kept that down. So, you know, we had a period for, I think, three decades where the forward 20-year return for long-term government bonds, the real return, was negative. Uh, so that was... That was a very difficult value proposition to owning any bonds. Um, and, uh, you know, fortunately, the things have, have changed since yeah. then. Um, you know, I think it's very interesting uh, that your kind of baseline in this last slide, Yuri, you chose the 60-40 portfolio. Uh, another narrative that you hear talked about a lot is kind of the death of the 60-40 portfolio. There was a chart that was getting passed around on Twitter a little bit. We covered it on our roundup last week. Um, I guess it'll be two weeks ago by the time this comes out. Um, and, you know, you're looking at kind of sentiment. Uh, Bank of America does their famous survey of uh, global fund managers and sentiment for bonds is the lowest that it's been uh, in 20 years. Uh, Yuri and I, I read your note, um, you know, before this interview, I know you kind of share in some of that um, negative sentiment as well. Um, you know, one thing I, I actually, this was completely new to me. I, I thought this was a really interesting chart that we're looking at here and kind of the, I, this idea that, uh, of the inverse correlation between uh, inflation having an impact on that inverse correlation between stocks and bonds. So maybe can you describe a little bit more about like what we're looking at here and what that has to do, what are the implications for kind of the future of 60-40 as a portfolio structure? Yes. As, as I mentioned earlier, it's an existential question for many, many you know, investors in, in the traditional markets um, because the 60-40 paradigm has been extremely successful for the past two decades. Right. If you look at a long-term uh, kind of CAGR against the the volatility, uh, sixty forty has returned nine percent nominal. So that's you know with a, against inflation of three percent, that's six percent real against an annualized volatility of about nine. Um, so you've you've given up two points versus an equity only portfolio, which has which the S and P is up eleven percent over that time, uh, but you get peace of mind, right? So you can sleep better at night because we, you know, we know historically that the market does always come back, but sometimes it comes back slowly and you can only appreciate that it comes back if you don't sell when it's down and having that 40 in there with that negative correlation to the 60, I think helps, you know, investors sleep at night and not panicking. Uh, but that 60-40 paradigm has only really been around for the past couple of decades. It, it was also around during the second half of the 50s and early 60s. But what I show in this chart here is the um, the 10-year inflation rate, so the CAGR for the CPI on the horizontal, and the five-year rolling correlation of the S&P 500 and long-term government bonds. And what you see is that kind of that spike down to the bottom, that's the, the, the disinflation era. So, you know, the average inflation rate over the past 100 years or so is 3%. And when you are kind of in that one to three percent zone and very stable, like like we have been over the past couple of decades, um, the correlations have been very negative, and that is the whole value prop for sixty forty, right? In the old days, you could own the forty to to earn income, you know, both nominal and real. And if you got if you got some insurance out of it against the sixty, then that was a, a double win. Um, but in recent years, of course, the, there is no really. I mean, there's a very small nominal return. You know, the we we know. Um, mathematically that that uh, if you hold bonds to maturity their your return's going to be the yield that you're getting right now so for long term bonds that's about 2% and if inflation stays north of 2% in the coming years which is not a prediction but it seems fairly plausible then you you're kind of locking in a negative real return so that means that right now the only reason anyone would buy bonds and hold them to, to term um, is uh, for the negative correlation against the S&P. But what this chart shows is that when you have periods of, of rising inflation above the long-term average of 3%, so that would be the upper right-hand quad, quadrant of the chart, uh, the correlation will flip to positive. And that's exactly what happened in uh, during the 60s. So, so, the, the, so in the, during the 30s and 40s, 
the, the correlation was positive. So like, like I said earlier, during the 40s, there was literally no reason to own any bonds because you got uh, a 2% nominal yield, you got a negative real yield because inflation was running at 6%, and bonds were positively correlated uh, to stocks. So you didn't even get the insurance benefit of, of you know, protecting yourself during equity shocks. Uh, then that flipped uh, negative during the 50s. It, it had its negative extreme of about minus 40% or so correlation in 1960, uh, similar to where we were in 2015. And then in 65, it flipped positive, and then it stayed positive until uh, around you know, the, the late 1990s, so for multiple decades. Um, so again, you know, in, in, a, in an ideal world, you're in a 60-40 portfolio, and, in that, and you're getting paid for the insurance because you're getting a yield on that 40, and you're getting that negative correlation, but the yield is now gone. Uh, the forward returns are very likely to be negative in real terms. And so we have to just rely on that negative correlation to keep that value prop alive. But if that flips over to positive, and again, that's not a prediction, but if it were, then that leaves you with basically no reason to own long-term treasuries. Not that you can own other bonds, high yield, tips, floaters, you name it. Uh, but I'm speaking uh, you know, purely about long-term government bonds here. Yeah, I'm, I'm bearish in real terms on bonds in general globally, um, you know, especially you know sovereign debt uh, and longer-term bonds. You know, a caveat is again going back to the you know so the 70s, shorter-term bonds could protect you more than longer-term bonds uh, because as as yields went up, uh, you know you could you could roll your shorter-term bonds into, into newer issues with higher yields. Um, and you still didn't do great, but you you did okay. Whereas in the 40s, the ironic thing was that even though you had inflation. Longer-term bonds did better because the whole yield curve was capped, um, and so basically, if you were holding a 10-year, you were getting like 2.5% yield, um, and you just kind of holding that for the decade, pretty much. It wasn't going any higher, and you were getting inflated away, but you were still earning 2.5%. Whereas if you were earning, if you were holding T-bills, you were getting paid less than half a percent, um, and still getting that inflation. Um, and so actually, you had, a, you had a weird thing. If you look at the the central bank balance sheet. You know, because in, in order to do yield curve control, they had to buy a lot of bonds. They basically had to have an open bid in order to buy bonds to, to defend their peg. Um, and what you saw is in the early phase, they bought a lot of long duration. Uh, but then as this went on and, and the market saw that the Fed's yield curve control was credible, uh, they started to say, well, wait, I mean, if, 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 if we have an artificial positive yield curve just pegged here, then I'd rather just hold the long term stuff and at least get a, a small yield. And so the Fed actually had to, had to twist this entire balance sheet because nobody wanted the T-bills. Everyone wanted the longer-term stuff. And so the Fed had to, like, you know, change their structure, basically do an operation twist, but in reverse, uh, to accommodate that shifting demand. And, and the Fed, they wrote a paper back in, I, I believe it was 2019, it was published in early 2020, right, right before this whole pandemic thing happened. Uh, and they, they went back and reviewed that whole situation, and they talked about the challenges of, of doing yield curve control in the way that they did. Um, and so there are nuances for what duration you want to own in this sort of environment, but the general structure is that I'm I'm bearish on bonds. I like tips, you know, better than normal bonds. Um, kind of like the you know the least bad thing in the pile is a way of looking at it. Uh, but yeah, one of my overall theses is is to find things to replace bonds with, um, because I, I I do think that you know most portfolios are structured with the idea of the past you know 20, 30, 40 years of structural disinflation from a high inflation level, uh, which is very good for the 60-40 portfolio um, and that, that inverse correlation. And so everyone's kind of positioned to fight the last battle. Um, and so I think that, that that's not a great portfolio going forward. And so yeah, I, I, I structurally agree that I, I generally want things other than bonds, with the caveat being that you know if you can have some cash or T-bills or bonds for dry powder, if for whatever reason you have a view that, that equity markets are going to you know, perform poorly over a specific time frame, and then you can kind of rebalance into that. Uh, but that overall, the the more you hold in those bonds and cash longer term, you're you're locking in a, a nearly guaranteed, you know, flat to negative return, real return. Yuri, you have a great slide here, um, basically on the utility of holding. Bitcoin is a hedge for bonds. And, and a lot of the folks that I, uh, you know, follow and really respect in this space have kind of drawn um, this consistent analogy as well. You know, if you, if you refer back to that slide where you kind of highlighted different uh, inflation regimes, so you looked at the 19, 
you know, late 20s to early 50s as financial oppression, late 60s to early 80s as inflation uh, heating up. And we might potentially be entering another um, regime of secular inflation. And Bitcoin is clearly an outperformer. So I guess, help me understand what is the relationship, I guess, between Bitcoin as a hedge for bonds? Um, and then I guess just your thoughts overall on the asset. Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked because I was just going to weigh in after Lynn spoke about you know, bonds <laughs> and, and what you can own instead of long duration government bonds. Um, and it, it's very interesting because uh, you know, this chart's a little bit busy, but it's a hypothetical portfolio of the uh, Bloomberg Barclays Intermediate Government Corporate Bond Index. So maybe a proxy for what a corporate treasurer might have on the balance sheet as an index. And then I swapped 2% of that index into Bitcoin. And and it and to me, it shows that in recent weeks or in, in recent, well, yeah, in recent weeks, uh, which is only a small snapshot in time, uh, Bitcoin has really come through on its sort of its value proposition, which is a store of value. Um, and so, you know, f for instance, if you look in 2018 on that chart, so the top panel shows the the the, the additional year over year return of an 82, a 98-2 portfolio versus a 100% intermediate government corporate bond portfolio. Um, and in 2018, of course, we all know what happened to Bitcoin. So then the excess return went negative. The additional volatility of owning just that 2% in Bitcoin went up another four points or so. Uh, and the drawdown, so the drawdown of the portfolio against its 12-month high was actually amplified by owning Bitcoin. So that was, you know, three years ago, the literally the opposite of what a diversifier should be, right? I mean, it, if it adds volatility and amplifies your drawdown, that's not what you want as a diversifier. Fast forward to, you know, just the, the last few weeks, what we're seeing is that the additional vol is only about 1.7 percentage points, which is, I think, reasonable for owning a very highly volatile asset class, of course. But look at the drawdown. It's actually been cut in half by owning just 2% of Bitcoin. So the value prop of store value, protecting purchasing power during periods of financial repression um, and, in, and or inflation, but they often obviously go hand in hand, uh, is, is bearing fruit right now, again, with the caveat that this is just a, a small window in time. Uh, but it, it really is, uh, you know, the, the Bitcoin is coming through beautifully as, as I think, what many people see it as. And, you know, my approach when I kind of went did my deep dive on Bitcoin about a year ago, uh, my conclusion was, you know, in a 60-40 portfolio, where does Bitcoin belong? And my sense is I don't want to touch the, the, the 60, like the, the compounding uh, ability for equities over the long term is so undisputed. I mean, you can have drawdowns and it can take a while to recover from those. But whether you go back 50 years or 100 years or 200 years or 300 years, uh, the, the compounding magic of, of equities is just is, is unparalleled. Um, and so I don't want to mess with that. But, you know, as we're talking now, if we're in an era where that 40 is uh, is impaired, at least in real terms, maybe not in nominal terms, but certainly in real terms, we need to find substitutes for that 40. Maybe not entirely, but we need to find other asset classes. And to me, that's where Bitcoin goes. Maybe a decade ago, we would have put gold in that spot, and maybe we should still put gold in there. I've got gold in there as well, including and also silver. But there's no question that Bitcoin is that shiny new 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 version of gold that also has a lot of network convexity. I, I agree with that, and I can add, a, I think, a couple of points. I you know that I I've discussed a couple of times, which is um yeah. So if we if we were to go back in history before Bitcoin existed, gold would be the go-to for this. It's kind of an alternative currency. You know, it's it's got. If you look at history, it's got anywhere between a, you know, a, a one to two percent annual growth rate in terms of estimated supply growth per year. It's, it's extremely stable. It's very, very hard to produce more gold quickly, um, even when the gold price spikes. Um, and so you have this very stable kind of hard money currency. And, you know, there's not a lot of demand for that in an environment of stable monetary policy where you have positive real yields because there's an opportunity cost for holding this zero yielding asset. Um, but when you're in an environment of inflation, uh, and then specifically inflation that's higher than the than the interest rates, uh, then suddenly you know a zero yielding asset looks a lot better 
than a negative yielding asset that, that they're printing a lot more of. Um, and so that's why, for example, if you look at the 80s, uh, you know, inflation was still high, but gold did poorly because by that point, uh, yields were above inflation. And so there was a case, you know, Volcker had addressed the, the negative yield concern. And so, you know, after gold had that bubble, a lot of capital wanted to get back into treasuries because you actually had a, a positive real return now. And so gold has been a, a great, you know, protection against, you know, the devaluation of currency and bonds. Uh, but of course, now with the invention of Bitcoin, um, you know, we have this other asset that we could explore and that is, you know, taken arguably market share and and also just thought share and, and basically mind share uh, from from gold. And so we have this, you know, again, we have a scarce, you know, money that doesn't, you know, we know it's supply issuance. We know that it has this hard cap. It's for the most part globally accessible. And this is, you know, this kind of sovereign debt problem is a, you know, a mostly a global phenomenon, at least among developed countries. Uh, but of course, you also see inflationary events even more thoroughly in emerging markets for, for se mostly separate reasons. Um, and so you, there's naturally a demand for this, especially in an environment where we're going to have probably persistently negative real yields uh, for quite some time. And, you know, the caveat of, of, you know, say you look over the past 12 years or, or say 10 years of Bitcoin's price history. Um, and it's not necessarily like this one to one and in, say inflation hedge because it's, you know, for most of that time, it's this very small, volatile kind of crazy asset. And so it's kind of like how if you look at, say, a growth stock in the early days, it tends to not be super correlated with anything in some cases because it, it's just it's kind of on its own cycle. It doesn't really care about recessions, for example, because it's growing at like 40 percent a year and it's eating its competitors. Um, and so it's going to grow regardless of what the economy is doing. But of course, once it gets big enough and it becomes the sector, uh, then it becomes more susceptible to those those cycles. And so Bitcoin in the first decade or so is this emerging asset class from zero. Um, mm. And so it's 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 you know it, it doesn't fulfill its like you know inflation hedge or store of, it's like an emergent store of value is how I describe it. It's this asset that's being that the market is kind of testing and getting to know, and it's it's exploring its total adjustable market cap and it's kind of coming into its own as a store of value inflation hedge type asset. So a lot of those kind of historical comparisons for it or as much as you can call one decade historical are, are not going to show this like you know precise defense against inflation or financial chaos like we saw in march 2020 when bitcoin fell along with everything else but i think the whole thesis is if you understand it and if you come to understanding you think it's going to be successful uh then it you know i think in the long run looking over the 2020s um, it is likely to do very well compared to you know negative real yielding bonds kind of like how you know, most hard assets should do pretty good in that environment. But then if you if you look at Bitcoin's qualities and for whatever reason, you come to the conclusion that it's probably going to take market share from other things and become a bigger share than it currently is of global assets, then it would probably be one of the better ones, if not the best. And you have the whole network effect, right? I mean, that obviously was part of that uh, parabolic growth. And, you know, I've done some work comparing it just to, to Apple stock. I mean, obviously, Apple's Apples and oranges, no pun intended. Uh, but, you know, the, you, you have the growth, the, the exponential growth of the network, and then the valuation grows exponentially to the exponential growth of that network. So you have like, you know, this is Metcalf laws, uh, Metcalf's law, of course. But uh, that, to me, describes, you know, the first two years, uh, the first 10 years of, of Bitcoin. And I think now that it's coming of age and matures, um, uh, it will have uh, really multiple use cases, uh, the network being one of them, but the store value being another one. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip, auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So 
stop listening to me, click the link at the bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it from my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software that syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Ave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. I'm not sure if folks will be familiar with John Pfeffer. Uh, he wrote an institutional investor's take on Bitcoin. He came on one of our very early shows, and he described this as a venture investment in a new store of value, yeah. which I thought was a pretty apt framework for looking at the entire space. Be curious to get your thoughts on, you know, you've got a couple of different frameworks for this, which is you've got kind of uh, Bitcoin and gold are going to have, each are going to have uh, kind of their own, they'll be able to coexist uh, relatively easily. Um, you've also kind of got this idea that Bitcoin might eat a lot more of the market share of store of value uh, than existing stores of value. So that could be gold, but it could also eat market share into like commercial real estate or like the yen or like a whole bunch of different other types of assets. So I guess when you're looking forward at gold or uh, at Bitcoin as a relative, um, what its relative market share of the store value use case looks like going forward, how do you see that, I guess, compared to other different buckets that currently occupy it? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I like, I, so, you know, gold, the value of all the above ground gold is about 10, 11 trillion. Bitcoin is about 1 trillion or so, uh, give or take. Um, for me, it, it's, it's, it's the point that Lynn made, right? It's, it's where can investors get real returns, you know, inflation adjusted returns. So if that's available in the real estate market, then I don't see Bitcoin eating the real estate market, right? But if it's not available in bonds, then I can see Bitcoin eating the bond market. Uh, and if gold, if it's hard to get a yield out of gold, which we know it is, um, and it sits there and it's bulky and it's hard to manage, then I can see it eating gold as well. Um, I don't see it eating equities because equities, I, I think, you know, the, the, the compounding math uh, is pretty undisputed. But I know, Lynn, if you, if you have another take on that, but to me, it's like that 80s comparison of, of, uh, of gold versus bonds. Once investors get a real return and can protect their, their value, um, I think that that becomes a viable asset class. Yeah, I think I have a couple a couple caveats or a couple kind of thought points that I use when, when addressing this question. And so the first is basically, you know, the whole Lindy effect, right? So the longer it goes, the the more credible some like the next prediction becomes, right? So, you know, Bitcoin at sixty thousand was a you know, some people would dismiss that, you know, two years ago. Uh, but here we are, right? So then when you're at sixty thousand, you know, two hundred thousand sounds less crazy than when you were at four thousand, right? So as it kind of takes market share and then you can you can assess the information at the time and then you constantly update your model for how big bitcoin could become and so i i generally start with conservative you know kind of total adjustable market um but then as it meets certain frameworks it's, it becomes easier to expand your your base case for how big it could get and, and as long as you start with the idea that actually you know you can have some upper bounds for how big it can get um, and so that, that's the approach I've been doing. Uh, and so, uh, and then two, I would, I would point out that, you know, I think one of the problems over the, especially the past 10 years, uh, kind of the post GFC environment, you know, a little mm. over 10 years is that, you know, for lack of good money, people are clearly monetizing other things, right? So, so in the U S we have the highest equity valuations as a percentage of, of household assets we've ever had. Um, and it's, well, it goes back to the whole, there, there is no alternative Tina. 
right? So yeah. they're like, well, I can't hold cash and bonds. And so I got to buy equities, even though I, I'm looking at, say, the CAPE ratio or the market cap to GDP ratio or whatever the whatever your preferred valuation metric is. And you're saying, well, I know they're expensive, but I, I, I have to hold them anyway. And so in, in many cases, we've essentially monetized the S&P 500 as a store of value rather than thinking of it as an investment. It's like we, we got to just shove money in there that we don't know what else to do with uh, because we can't just leave it in T-bills. Um, and so the same thing's true for prime real estate. So if you're if you're a billionaire and you're trying to figure out how to preserve your wealth, you're like, well, I mean, I don't know how to value this beachfront property. It seems expensive. It went it, it doubled over the past, you know, two years, but I'd still rather own this than T-bills. And so I, the argument among some of the really bullish Bitcoiners is that if if you do continue to reach certain thresholds and Bitcoin just keeps going, um, you know, it becomes if you have this kind of global hard money, it becomes an alternative that people have, have monetized these other assets. They've essentially added a monetary premium that is above their utility value. Um, and so, we're, you know, in that world, let, let's say Bitcoin gets big enough, it becomes worth, you know, tens of trillions of dollars, uh, which is still small compared to, say, global money supply or or global asset value. But if it starts if it starts to reach the, those types of market caps, you could argue that things like certain types of real estate, certain types of stocks, fine art, that things that that people have put an additional monetary premium in for lack of good money might mm. get drawn out and into Bitcoin, and that those things return to a more healthy valuation where they're mostly held for their utility value, um, and, and that they have more reasonable valuations. Therefore, they have higher returns um, for taking on risk, uh, whereas you know Bitcoin becomes like the conservative gold-like hard money asset. But that's of course. You know, right now we're still at roughly a trillion market cap, so we're still kind of premature to that type of assessment. But that would be the argument for people that have a very optimistic look into Bitcoin's maybe 20 year future. Yeah. And, you know, that's a great point, because what you're really describing is the the equity risk premium. Right. I mean, at least for for the stock market. So when investors don't have alternatives, they are willing to accept lower future returns, which is, you know, uh, manifested by a lower ERP. And when they have an uncertain future, like in 1949, the ERP was like 15%, uh, they really needed to get paid to take that risk. And I, so I think what you're describing is really lower, you know, lowered ERPs um, across the, the, the spectrum <clears throat> because uh, you know, something needs to be monetized and, uh, and bonds and cash is a hard place to do it right now. Uh, so in the same way that it's like software is eating the world, Bitcoin might eat the monetary premium of the world. Um, it's not as catchy, I'll admit. Uh, Mark's got marketing on me. Um, but that's, man, that's a really interesting idea. Okay, let me ask you this then in that scenario, because here's something that I've always just, I'm, I'm curious about. Um, so Bitcoin's Kager over, over its lifetime, and it would, you'd have to imagine that it would, you know, um, smoothen out, but something like 200% per year, right? Let's say that's your hurdle rate for investment. Let's say Bitcoin's uh, Kager you know, gets cut by 75% and it's Kager over like the next 10 years is 50%. That's a really high hurdle rate um, for investing in capital allocation. On the one hand, that does sound very good, right? We probably could use extract some speculation out of markets today. But on the other hand, I think if you looked at it from a slightly different frame of mind, you could actually say, man, that, that actually, I'm not sure that's so positive of a thing, right? Because there might actually be the same way that there's been probably ridiculous valuation and overinvestment to the point where we're getting zombie companies. There could be underinvestment if the, if the hurdle rate for your money was that high. What do you think about that but, kind of point? But you know, I think you have to look at it as a sharp ratio, right? So, so the Kager over the past, you know, whatever, 12 years is, I think, like 260%. And the vol is 200%. So the sharp ratio, the Kager divided by the vol, is one and a quarter, which, which sounds crazy, but that's the same as a 60-40. Like a 60-40 index has a, has a one and a quarter sharp ratio, which is exactly the same as Bitcoin, but obviously the numerator and the denominator are orders of magnitude apart. So I, I think, you know, from, from my perspective as, as a traditional investor, uh, if the forward returns were to go down, which I think is highly likely as an, any asset class matures, um, you would want the volatility to go down with it, which presumably would also happen, right? I mean, we see even this year, the drawdown was 55%. A few years ago, the drawdown was 90%, right? So so I think the, the risk-reward characteristics as the asset class matures and evolves 
both the numerator and denominator go down. And I, and I think that's how it's, certainly institutional investors, I think, would, 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 would look at it. I, I view it similar that, you know, basically the earlier it is early, basically you get higher returns in exchange for higher volatility and higher tail risk of the whole thing not working out. I mean, you know, it, it had to go through these big tests. It had the Mt. Gox thing. It had the block size war. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's had these challenges. It had, you know, half of its mining just move, you know, in, in, within one year across the world. It has these crazy things happen to it. Um, and so, the, you know, the more tests it goes through, the bigger it gets. And then the lower volatility it gets, the more, more widely held it is, the more normalized it is to hold a higher percentage of your of your assets in it. Um, so there's that. And if you if you step back and kind of look at this process of, you know, demonetization of other assets, if that plays out, um, or at least in, in some direction, if it directionally plays out to some degree, it, I think it would have some pros and cons. I mean, any transition like that is, is going to be challenging. Um, mm. But, you know, the argument, for example, like, uh, you know, Mike, I've know that, I know that you have, you've mentioned before, like the house price to income ratio, right? So mm-hmm. we've, 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 again, we've monetized houses for, for lack of other things to monetize. As interest rates came down, uh, you know, it basically has been e- easier to justify those high prices. Uh, and that's really good for people that have owned a house the whole time, but it's, it's harder for new entrants uh, into the housing market. It, it makes it, uh, you know, unaffordable for, for, you know, Gen Z and millennials uh, in some cases to buy a home. Um, and, and, and if they do, they have to go in a ton of debt to do it. They, you know, like my father was like a, you know, he was pretty old when I was born. And so he was, he bought his first house back in like the, the late fifties. Um, and it was on like a police officer's salary. He just bought it when he was like 22. And it, you know, it just, it was, it was a different time back then. You just buy a house on a, on a, on a middle income salary. And so say the argument from some Bitcoiners that would view as a good thing that the monetary premium sucked out of these things is that things that should be more affordable for the utility value would, would return to that in a, in a more kind of sound money environment, let's say. Um, whereas you'd, you'd still have investments in things that, that you know, are providing long-term value. Uh, but of course, during a transition, you know, if you suck monetary premium out of a house, you could also suck a monetary premium out of something that is, that is enabling new technology, new productivity. Um, and so, I, you know, any transition like that is going to be a challenge. But I think, I think in, if that, were to, that hypothetical scenario were to play out, I think it would come with pros and cons, uh, but I think as the dust settles, that should be a, a healthier environment. To, because if you go back in history, people should be able to essentially save money in something that's not speculative, in order to, you know, build a retirement. Um, and so they shouldn't have to have like 100% of their net worth in, in equities. They should have something that, that that they can save in that that's somewhat reliable. Um, and right now, there's just not a lot of good alternatives for that, including Bitcoin at this current size because for a lot of people it's too volatile um but in in a world where you know there is some sort of a you know kind of a something that's acknowledged as, as money that's pretty stable um that gives that people can have a larger share of the net worth in it and then be more selective with the types of investments that they do after three and a half decades in the business uh, i've come to the conclusion that the less drama the better uh, when it comes to investing long-term investing i don't want the drama you know quiet markets good i like quiet markets <laughs> yeah i think it's i think it's good for people to basically address their own risk tolerance and specifically volatility tolerance um and so you know someone who's put a thousand hours of research into bitcoin obviously can handle generally a larger position than someone who's just trying it out and just kind of learned about it last week uh so is there's that kind of um you know, if you were to chart like, you know, knowledge and conviction versus allocation, there's going to be a, a change there. And, you know, going back to the whole thing, if we say, OK, if Bitcoin's going to have a very high, say, double digit Kager over the, over the next decade, the, you know, some people ask, why not just put everything into it? I've, I've had people ask me that question. And I said, ultimately, it's because of tail risks and it's because of human nature and volatility. Uh, and so I have a I have a large allocation into Bitcoin partially because I, I put a decent chunk into it and also because it appreciated, uh, fortunately. Um, and it just, you know, it just didn't rebalance it, right? So it's just a, it's a large chunk, but it's still small enough that when this summer, for example, Bitcoin more than got cut in half, I was like, eh. you know, it's not like if so, so when people put their entire net worth into something like that, you know, that that's where they lose sleep, right? So people can, there's a, I think there's a range of allocations that make sense. But it comes down to their individual temperament, comes down to their knowledge on it, their conviction on it, and, you know, what, what kind of lifestyle they have, what their obligations are um, as, as we go forward. 
I want to ask uh, just a final question, like actually moving forward on just the regime that you think we're entering and, and a couple of different narratives that I've just consistently heard about inflation and I just genuinely am not sure uh, how to think about it. So one, infl- one narrative that you hear about inflation, I've heard Luke mention this uh, before Luke Roman, is that actually, you know, inflation has this kind of it tends to narrow the gap of inequality, uh, so to speak, right? Uh, salaries kind of get inflated, uh, financial assets tend to get hit. It's not a super pleasant process all the time, but you might end up with um, a lot of the inequality that gets built up over a period of time getting erased. And then there's this other idea where it's like, well, actually, you know, inflation tends to be, that's the malfunctioning of an economy. It is not a fun period of time to live through. It is a, it's a bad thing that should be avoided at, at all costs. What do, what do you both think of those two different narratives? Is, do you subscribe to one more than the other? Is it something in, in between? I mean, what do you think about all that? Um, I, I'll, I'll just start. Uh, to me, it's the pendulum swing between capital and labor, right? I mean, we've, and, and the, we and you know, the 1930s into the 40s, uh, you know, kind of a, a similar analog in time. Uh, so the last couple of decades was all about rewarding capital, owners of capital, uh, at and I don't want to say at the expense of labor, but labor certainly got the the, the short end of the of the stick. And now, you know, in in the pandemic era, we see kind of the backlash, right? So now all of a sudden, supply chains are broken, and uh, there's not enough truck drivers because nobody told their kids over the past thirty years you should become a truck driver or a plumber. And so they all went to Wall Street or whatever, um, and now they're all going into crypto. Uh, but um, but it's. Um, so it's that it's that pendulum swing, right? And so the capital and share buybacks are part of that. And I think mostly buybacks are benign, right? They're just companies like the Fangs uh, generating more cash flow than they need. And so rather than issuing a dividend, they return it to shareholders indirectly via buybacks. But you know, even like the the current uh, the current fiscal plans have have a one percent tax on buybacks so you're proposed, and so maybe that's another way that the pendulum might swing towards the labor side, the wages side, and in that sense, uh, that would be presumably inflationary, right? Because that's going to create a wage inflation, and that would be an equalizer because then you, you, the pendulum is swinging. But I would imagine that, um, and then you tell me if if you agree that if you run that to, to an extreme. And you have a loss of purchasing power, and you have a loss of margins on the on the corporate balance sheets, and therefore our income statements, and therefore companies are not you know investing or what have you. You can quickly get into a, a malaise where essentially everybody loses. So I, I do think that it's probably a fairly delicate balance. But I think that pendulum is just swinging from one extreme, the capital side, to the other. So we probably have a, a fair amount of runway before we get there. I, I agree, and I've written about that general theme of that capital and labor, you know, there's long-term multi-decade pendulum swings. And going back to the topic of inflation, the problem is that it's a very complex answer. Right. And what a lot of people do is they, they pick a subset and a narrative and they kind of just focus on that. Whereas it's one of those things where the answer to that question is inflation, how does it affect wealth concentration is actually kind of, it's, it's, you need like a multiple paragraph answer to answer that question. And so so just take a, take a step back. Hyperinflation is, is like always bad, right? So when a currency breaks, almost you know 99% of the people have trouble. Businesses can't function when there's no pricing mechanism, and it's just bad for everyone. And even these like near like things that aren't technically hyperinflations, but just like horrible inflations that you see throughout emerging markets, where savings just get you know erased every generation or so, or, or cut in half. Uh, you know, those are terrible and people should have a way to defend against that. That's, you know, like the work of Alex Gladstein, you know, from the Human Rights Foundation talks about Bitcoin usage in emerging markets, how a lot of these people, they just don't, you know, they don't have access to stocks. They're stuck in their local currency and their currency gets devalued and they just have to start all over. Whereas, you know, something like Bitcoin uh, is a tool that they have now that, that basically kind of think gives them back some of that power. Um, so there's that you know, set of scenarios. If you look back and say United States history, uh, if you look at the 1940s, the 1970s inflationary decades, you actually had a partial reduction in wealth concentration during those decades as measured by say the share of wealth owned by the top 0.1% or the top 1%, however you want to define it, you had a, you had a contraction in wealth concentration and those partially related to the policies that were happening. So in the seventies, you had very strong wage growth um, and you had equities perform very poorly. Uh, so, you know, the, the wealthy generally didn't, their assets didn't do great while, while workers had their wages go up. It was a very unionized environment, very kind of pro-labor still, kind of the tail end of that. Um, 
And then you also, you know, if, if a middle class person had a home with a fixed rate mortgage, uh, that did very well financially. Um, in the 40s, again, you had an inflationary environment. Uh, it was obviously a war. It was obviously terrible for a lot of people. Um, but it, kind of the during and the aftermath of it, uh, you know, there were some of these partially re redistributed policies. So it, it, if you go before then to World War One, when soldiers came back, they just kind of gave them a bus ticket and they were like, thanks, you know, we appreciate it. Whereas in the, in, you know, because you had this rise of communism in certain countries and it, there, there were a lot of people sympathetic to it, uh, you know, they, they said we have to handle this better when soldiers come back. And so they, they did the GI Bill. They, you know, they, they put them through college. They put them through technical schools. They helped them get homes. And you tax, you know, they tax the, the wealthy at pretty high levels while also, as we mentioned, inflating away their bonds, which, you know, were, were in large part held by the wealthy. Um, and so you had that, you know, partially redistributed policy without going into like communism, right? So they said in, in order to make, not have communism, let's go like 20% of the way there and, and try to fix some of these imbalances, right? So that's kind of what they did. They kind of threaded that needle. Um, and so another way of looking at it is that when you have inflation, it benefits debtors over creditors. And so people often use the narrative that the problem is that, you know, the wealthy, we, they have all these inflation indexed assets, they have these hard assets, so they don't mind inflation, but that the, you know, the poor and the middle class, they have most of their assets in cash and that gets inflated away. But that's actually only partially, that's missing a big picture because if you look at, you know, the, the data of the bottom 50% and then you look at the next like 40%, you know, the, the middle 50 to the 90, then you look at the next 9% and you look at the 1%. If you segment those four groups, uh, as you go down the income spectrum, they have higher debt to asset ratios. So the bottom 50% have almost zero net worth because, you know, they have roughly as much liabilities as assets. Then when you go up to the next group, the kind of the middle to upper middle class, uh, you know, they, they have more assets than liabilities, but still quite a bit of liabilities. They generally have a very large, say, fixed rate mortgage. They might have credit card debt. Um, and, you, and as you go up, you know, into the top 1%, they're actually very unlevered on average, unless they happen to be like a real estate mogul or something, you know, their entire net worth in real estate, they're highly leveraged. But other than like, you know, specific examples, they are generally very unlevered. Um, and so when you have that inflation, you know, those, those, you know, the, say people in those lower middle spectrums, sure, their cash balances don't do well, but their their mortgage gets partially, you know, inflated away. Their credit card debt gets partially inflated away, you know, different liabilities like that. And so it's actually, and also they, they generally benefit from those redistributed policies, you know, whether it's the GI Bill or, you know, child tax credits and stimulus checks. It really depends on the specific environment. In this particular environment, so say the past 10 years, We've had, say, asset price inflation. We've had suppressed wages. We've outsourced labor. We've automated labor. And so this has been a wonderful environment for the top 1%, top 5%, top 10%. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's been wealth concentration. And then even in, in here in 2020, 2021, when we did some of those, you know, types of inflationary policies, we gave people stimulus checks, things like that. But if you look at the percentage of the money that went to that versus the entire spending, uh, it's still actually a pretty small percentage, and a lot of it just flowed into corporate corporations and asset prices still. Um, and so that was one of those environments where kind of you know the top one percent did fantastic still. Um, so it really kind of comes down to the nuances of, of how policy is constructed, uh, and that's why it's one of those things. It doesn't make us a, a quick soundbite, right? So that's a really boring long answer for is inflation good or bad for wealth concentration. I, I think that the ideal environment is you just have good policy and you don't have inflation. And, and people have access to ways to protect their capital, uh, like Bitcoin or, and whatever else. Um, but when we, in the in the kind of the current monetary structure we, we live in, it's just a really complicated answer to that question. Yeah, and just you know, one one uh, additional anecdote. You know, taxes obviously feature very very highly in that. You know, yeah. during the 1930s, the second half of the 30s, tax rates went way up to the 70s and 80s um, percentage points, but the the income threshold threshold was very high it was like five million in 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 you know those do, that times dollars back in the 30s and then in the early 40s when the u.s went into world war ii uh, the rate went up to like 90 percent or something like that but the income threshold went from five million to two hundred thousand so that was a massive 
you know, kind of widening of, of the, the, the tax pool uh, that brought in a lot more, more revenue. So I, I do think taxes are very much part of that, that dynamic. And just almost, you know, coming full circle to where we opened here, I love, uh, Lane, your kind of master framework of these 80-year cycles. Uh, you know, the term unprecedented gets thrown around a lot today. Um, certainly, these are, these are not precedented times, but they're not as unprecedented, I think, as other folks would have you believe. And if you go back and look throughout history, Ray Dalio, there's a book right there, big debt crises. Uh, and I would say we're on the more extreme end of that right now. But many, many, uh, you know, there are, many, there are other examples throughout history of when we've made it through periods like this and, and done very well. And Lynn, I, big debt of gratitude. You heard, I listened to some interview you gave years ago talking about the lessons of history, Ariel and Will Durant. There's, an, there's a chapter in there on economics. I apologize. I've, I gave you credit the first like three times I referred to it, then it was like too long and I started passing it off as my own. But there's a, there's a great uh, passage in there, uh, you know, describing like 600 BC, um, Athens and this wealth redistribution that they went through. I mean, it kind of just gives you chills to read about. So I, I highly recommend you go check it out. It makes me feel better to know that civilization has made it through even weirder times. Yeah, and by this. the way, one, one nuance uh, to the debt cycle is that everyone is in that cycle today, right? Usually it's one country uh, running amok and then the currency you know, changes uh, hands in terms of the reserve status. But you know, the U.S., Europe, China, Japan, we're all in the same boat. And that's why uh, I think probably um, Lynn might agree with me that I'm one of those people. I'm not one of those people that thinks the dollar is going away as the reserve currency because there's a lot of other dirtier shirts out there uh, than, than the U.S. So I, I do think that's one important um, distinction, which doesn't hurt Bitcoin because that can be a hedge against all, all devaluating um, currencies. But um yeah, my overall approach is basically that I, I see that global reserves are diversifying more. Uh, and so we have kind of Russia and China interested in, in de-dollarizing to some extent. And so my framework is essentially that the dollar is shifting from, you know, the global reserve currency, meaning like the only currency you can buy oil in, uh, to, you know, uh, a reserve currency, you know, prop, you know, perhaps still the biggest and just, you know, just kind of a, a lower percentage of that, of that basket. Um, and then, you know, there's some areas where the U.S. is like the, the cleanest dirty shirt. So it's got some of the best geography. Uh, you know, they say the central bank balance sheet is still a smaller percentage of GDP, uh, you know, than, than say the ECB or, or Japan. And whereas the areas that we're the dirtiest dirty sheet in generally relate to our, our wealth concentration, our, our structural trade deficit, uh, and, and, you know, military industrial complex spending, th those sort of, you know, deficit spending, healthcare costs as a percentage of, of, of GDP or per capita uh, compared to outcomes. You know, so we, we have a lot of kind of those specific issues. But yeah, in terms of the long term debt cycle, many of these countries are, are in similar circumstances, especially at, le at least among the developed world uh, as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you both have been already very, very generous uh, with your time. Um, if folks want to find out more about uh, you, Lynn, or you, Yurian, uh, what are the best resources? Uh, follow you on Twitter, subscribe to newsletters. What's the best way to do it? So I'm at, I'm at lindalton.com. I have a free newsletter, and I'm on Twitter at lindaltoncontact. I'm, I'm on, on, on LinkedIn and at, uh, on Twitter as at Timur Fidelity. Excellent. Well, thank you both. This has been, in case you haven't told from the smile that hasn't left my face this entire time, this has been a ton of fun. Uh, I've learned a lot. Um, and we'll have to do it again soon. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks.